Welcome to the PeaceWorks Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Moles. I'm a pastor and biblical counselor who helps churches and families confront the evil of domestic violence and promote healthy, God-honoring relationships. Welcome back to the PeaceWorks Podcast, everyone. On today's episode, we're going to be answering your questions regarding separation and reconciliation. But before we jump into that, let me remind you of some of the resources we have available to you and for you at chrismoles.org. chrismoles.org, we have our blog, access to the podcast here, other resources, speaking events that will be coming up, and of course, PeaceWorks University. PeaceWorks University is our online membership site. Uh, where you can take the next step. If you've enjoyed the PeaceWorks podcast, then PeaceWorks University is probably your best next step for access to all my past resources, hundreds of hours of video-based content, written material, toolbox items, worksheets, conversations, uh, all of that available to you at PeaceWorks University, where we talk about domestic violence prevention and intervention from a gospel-centered perspective. All right, let's jump into today's topic. We got several questions from listeners regarding reconciliation, and so I'm just going to walk through those questions and do my best to answer them. Uh, Certainly this won't be exhaustive, but here in about 20 minutes, let's see uh, if we can glean a little bit of wisdom from these questions. Number one, how do you suggest couples living separately begin evaluating their individual readiness to reconcile. How do you suggest couples living separately begin evaluating their individual readiness to reconcile? So I'm assuming this is a domestic abuse case if it's coming to PeaceWorks to be uh, addressed. And so there's a couple things even in the question I just want to draw attention to. I don't know that there's any ill will here, but I, I do think it's important for us to evaluate the question just a little bit. Uh, And the first thing is this, um, the indication that this is a a couple's issue, that the couple is living separately. While that's true, I just want to make sure we understand that abuse is not a mutual problem. Abuse is one person using power to coerce or control their partner. And so I would, first of all, just recommend that we put the primary responsibility on the sinful individual, the one who is using power to control. This is really important, and I think you can see this uh, in the remainder of the question as the questioner says, how do they begin evaluating their individual readiness to reconcile? And while it's true that we're running two parallel tracks, right? So the victim in this case through separation is working on their identity in Christ, on their core strength, on their... uh, understanding of abuse and oppression on their own responses, on their independence and empowerment, while at the same time the abuser is working through aspects of sin and repentance and uh, worldview development and uh, comparing and contrasting this heart of violence to this mind of Christ. And so each party's doing individual intensive work. Totally agree with that. I think the area that I would just throw caution is the idea of individual readiness or um, 
putting some responsibility or all responsibility mutually or equally upon the part the partners. And, and let me try to unpack that a little better because I know we're dealing in these cases with marriage separation. And so we're also thinking about marriage reconciliation. But remember, the primary goal of domestic abuse intervention is not marriage reconciliation. It is safety and then accountability. Safety for the victim and accountability for the perpetrator. There is no guarantee that reconciliation will happen, although it is a possibility. I would never take that off the table, but I do think that in the Christian church, we miss a lot of opportunities, a lot of gospel opportunities, by making reconciliation the primary objective rather than a necessary, reasonable side effect to godly sorrow and repentance. Uh, so that's one thing I really want to throw out there and make sure that we're not mutualizing. So how do they live separately? How do they evaluate progress? Well, certainly I think having caregivers who are trained and equipped and skilled are a big step in the right direction. And so with that said, you know, on the victim side, we're going to be looking for aspects of uh, identity, empowerment, core strengthening, all of those victim-centric tools that we have available to us in biblical counseling to recognize who God is, that God is sovereign, not their partner, that they are free in Christ, not bound to the whims and wills of their partner, that they are able and allowed and should be making decisions and uh, independent thought and action. Uh, and I hate to say it that way, but really, really thinking through uh, how much independence has been robbed from the victim, how much has been stolen from them, and being able to, through Jesus, who we're told, I think it's in Galatians, that it was for freedom, right, for liberty's sake, that he set us free, that there is freedom in Christ, and helping her live in that freedom and empowerment. Of course, for him, we are really looking at accountability and responsibility because you know as well as I do that abusers rarely take responsibility. They will um, feign and fawn some responsibility. They will take some responsibility, but it's usually conditional. And if you're an abuser or have been accused of abuse and you're listening to the podcast, I want you to self-reflect on this. When you take ownership or try to take responsibility of the ways in which you've harmed your partner, is it often accompanied by a but, but she, or is it accompanied with some kind of mutualizing thought or words that, yes, of course I did this, but if, if you're dismissing any power in your responsibility, any level of ownership by co-blaming your partner, then is it real repentance? Because godly sorrow, remember, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 7, has a level of urgency and intensity and passion to see one's own sin addressed through repentance, not um, some kind of co-ownership. So really keep that in mind as you're wrestling through that process as well. Uh, I think you know having good people helpers is part of that, but one thing I would really, really warn against before I move on to the next part of the question is mutualizing the reconciliation for a couple obvious reasons that I've already stated, but there's a couple ends to this as well. 
When reconciliation becomes the primary goal, I think it has the potential of tempting the abusive partner into getting by, right? To getting on, to getting along. Meaning if he can just check off the boxes, just jump through the hoops, then eventually he gets what he wants. And this isn't about getting what we want as an abusive person. This is about being confronted and challenged and embracing repentance. So if reconciliation is the goal, it's a great goal. I just think it's an inferior goal to safety. So keep that in mind. Um, really, the other thing too is depending upon the extent of the abuse, and I I know all abuse is bad. So I'm just speaking right now pragmatically. So this is Pastor Chris just speaking practically. I know philosophically that all abuse is bad, but I also know from experience with victims, some things are more tolerable than others. And I don't mean that in a negative way or to encourage anyone to tolerate any type of harm, but I do know that uh, in the practical world, the real world, there are some things, some acts of abuse that you just can't come back from. And we will often ask victims to walk down the ladder um, that they've been forced to climb, and I don't think it's fair. The, if, the, if the abuse has escalated to a point of no return and that fear is present and that threat is present, I, I'm not going to force a victim into reconciliation. I'm going to continue to work with them to provide for safety. So I think we need to keep that in mind. What, what was the abuse? What was the extent of the abuse? What was the impact on the victim? Before we start talking about reconciliation, we really need to understand the dynamic. On a, a cheap, not apples to apples comparison, you know, if my, if my neighbor asked to borrow my lawnmower and he returned it broken, um, I may still have a relationship with my neighbor I may still, you know, talk over the fence. I may be less likely to loan him my lawnmower. Uh, and if I do, it's going to be with a conversation about how much money I had to spend to have it repaired and how thoughtless it was for him to return it broken. And that's just in casual relationship. Now, imagine living with somebody who has sexually assaulted you or physically assaulted you or strangled you or had you living under emotional pain and fear for decades. What we're asking people to do is not an easy or simple thing. And it's not as simple as he cried some tears. Now let's reconcile. Please keep in mind the complexity of this problem and the extent to which a solution is reached before we rush reconciliation. I know I took more time on that than I expected. So let's see how many more of these questions we can get through in 10 minutes. Um, how can the couple respond to setbacks? So it really depends upon what the word setbacks means. Uh, if, uh, and this is how I would work it from a perpetrator perspective, if the, the individual, the perpetrator, has been doing good work, I mean, they have been trudging along for, let's say, 12 weeks and accomplishing everything they've been asked to accomplish, they're coming to realizations they never knew before, they're experiencing sorrow to a greater degree than they ever have before, and they're attempting to have a cordial conversation with their partner. And during that conversation, they say something that we might call a trigger, or it tempts their partner uh, or entices their partner into an emotional state, meaning uh, they experience that old fear 
that old history, that old story. And let's even assume, let's think the best. Let's assume that the, the perpetrator didn't mean to harm them. Um, I would not call that a setback. I would call that um, data, information that we need, information that the perpetrator needs. And, and he's got, at that point, a couple different ways to respond to it. So let's say that scenario plays out and he comes back to our next meeting and he's just seen nothing will ever change. She'll never forgive me. She'll never trust me. We're never going to reconcile. She just hates me. Well, that, that language and mentality is speaking some truth to me. And one of the things we'll have to discuss is how long do you expect this to take? Um, what did you want to see happen? Now we're coming right back to his desires, right? So the relationship's not functioning because he didn't get what he wanted. Well, in that regard, we need to change our goals for the relationship. It is exactly those goals that led the relationship into an abusive state because you wanted something and you didn't get it and then you forced it. So in this regard, you're not getting what you want. How will you handle it differently? How will you respond differently? Another direction I may take is to ask him, you know, it took you 30 years to get to this point of brokenness and desperation. It took you decades of doing all these things that you've told me about in the previous weeks. How quickly do you think it's going to take to turn it around? Like, why do you think 12 weeks is going to be sufficient for your wife? you have been demeaning and destroying her for years. I don't think you can expect her um, to completely trust you. It makes perfect sense. So if it's a setback in that regard, I don't think that's a setback. And that's the mentality, right? It seems like a setback to reconciliation, but remember the goal is not reconciliation. In the world of accountability and transformation and change, that's actually a positive. That's a foothold, a stepping stone, a landmark, a signpost that says we're still separated by a lack of trust that I, the abuser, created. Will I own the distance that's still present between me and my spouse? That's a huge benefit, not a setback. Now, if it's a setback from the abuser's perspective that, okay, we, we tried moving back in together, which again is a victim's decision not my decision. Even if I think you know, the victim would be safer separated, if they make the decision to move back in, it's still their decision. That's actually a win because um, they don't need me telling them what to do. They need to be empowered to make decisions. So I might disagree with the decision, but nonetheless, it's a decision that I will support. So let's say they move back in together and things are going well for a couple weeks and then there's an explosive episode in which he uses physical force. I also would not call that a setback. Transformation should not include um, rem remissive violence. Is that even a word? Remissions towards violence? A Christ follower empowered by the Holy Spirit, and I think this is a huge miss in the church, and this is going to be a doctrinal difference. Maybe we have theological differences on this. I just don't see the Christian faith and violence coinciding at all. At all. That an individual would use power to control another person is antithetical to the gospel. And if an individual has come to repentant faith, godly sorrow, has recognized the sin of pride that produces violence, 
then my expectation is that violence would cease. Sure, we're going to give them tools and practical help and you know principles of sanctification, but if we're talking about a relapse of violence, I'm not, I'm not really on board with that. I think it's more revealing the necessary changes needed at the level of the heart. So with the question, how do they respond to setbacks? I think one is evaluate whether or not it's even a setback or if it is a help, a signpost, right? A signpost that there's still work to be done on rebuilding trust in that first example. Or in the second example, that change really hasn't occurred. So um, yeah, keep that, keep that in mind. Uh, next part of the question, when should they begin joint marriage counseling? Well, I wouldn't put it on a time frame. And I think that's, this is where I frustrate a lot of pastors. Uh, so if you're a pastor listening, I am sorry, uh, but this is a frustrating answer. I don't know as far as time frames. If we put a time frame on coming together in marriage counseling, I think we actually do a disservice to the couple uh, because this is a case, I think, where you need wisdom, eyes on the prize, evaluating not only the extent of the abuse, which is going to, you know, if it's um, longstanding, if it's got lethality or dangerous elements where people's lives and health are at risk, if it has um, longstanding health effects, if it's been uh, involving the children, uh, if it's been isolatory from family members that's cultivated a level of bitterness, those are all different dynamics, right? Kind of broadening the gulf between the partners. And so it may take more intensity, work, recognition, responsibility to see two come together. Here's what I would warn against. I would warn against doing marriage counseling by a proxy. This is a desire of many abusers that once they get into abuse counseling, where they're working with an individual to address their own heart, they attempt to use that time to talk about the sins and flaws of their wife in the hopes that their counselor will collude and somehow help them toward marriage reconciliation. If you're doing abuse care and counseling, maintain a really hard line that this isn't marriage counseling by a proxy. I'm not here to help you reconcile with your wife. I'm here to hold you accountable and to confront you on your sin. There is nothing incredibly pleasant about what we're doing, right? Unless conviction comes and you see and experience change. So I wouldn't put a time frame on it. I would also, secondly, trust and listen to the victim. If she's not ready to jump into marriage counseling, apart from pressure from her partner or church, then I don't think you're ready for marriage counseling. So if you have to pressure the wife, for instance, as a pastor to return to marriage counseling, then then you're prop, she's probably not ready for marriage counseling and the husband's probably not married, ready for marriage counseling. If the husband is using his power to persuade you and to persuade her to return to marriage counseling, then he's probably not ready for marriage counseling. We have to thoroughly do abuse care before we even consider uh, marriage counseling. That's my recommendation. In order to thoroughly do that, we have to see repentance. And we have to see a willingness from the heart and the part, the part and the heart of the victim, which is a lot uh, easier said than done for somebody who's been hurt so dramatically. 
And then let's not forget, there was another question that came in. I'll address it briefly. Maybe I'll devote an episode to it in the future. But let's not forget to look for the signs of abuse that continue post-separation. There are probably a lot of victims who listen to this podcast who could say amen. Even after separation has been an attempt to bring about safety, abusers may continue to use coercive and controlling behavior post-separation. If you witness that or become aware of that, recognize that reconciliation is not your next step because the heart has not been properly addressed and this victim is still in danger. Things such as withholding or manipulating finances in order to control one's partner during a separation, rather than a willingness to provide. Think about Paul's instructions in uh, the letter to the Thessalonians about uh, people not providing for their own family. I see this all the time with abusers who use financial controls. What about legal issues in custody battles or legal separations uh, where the husband you know, looks for a bulldog lawyer or tries to limit anything or restrict uh, hordes and tries to hurt through the legal system? A harassment or stalking happens during separation. In fact, a victim's at greater risk of harm when trying to leave. So keep that in mind. If you see these type of things, um, parenting that's counterproductive, where the abusive partner undermines the victim constantly, then of course there's abuse is still going on. There's not reconciliation to be had because abuse is still happening. Uh, using others like the church to commit what we call domestic abuse via proxy. Using pastors and church leaders to harass, to uh, using friends in the church to beg and plead on their behalf. Uh, practicing neglect, isolating through, again, finances, resources, and so on. All of these continued tactics of power and control are signs that not only are we not ready to pursue reconciliation, but abuse is happening during the separation. Okay, I hope that's helpful. Again, in 20 minutes, we can't exhaust the topic but I am thrilled that you're willing to join us and to think through these things. Don't rush reconciliation. It's a wonderful thing when it happens, but it needs to be productive and both parties need to be ready. One, through the presence of transformation, genuine godly sorrow and repentance, and the other, right, through identity in Christ, uh, trust, empowerment, and a willingness to engage. Shouldn't happen through coercive means, either by the perpetrator or by people helpers. All right, God bless you guys. Thank you for listening to the PeaceWorks podcast. Until next time.